Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis and inspiration to power your day. But just to begin with, we will be tuning into a hearing on worldwide threats to the homeland. That's by the House Committee on Homeland Security, chaired by Congressman Mark E. Green. We do know that the threats across the world and to the homeland have increased dramatically since October 7th of this year when Hamas attacked Israel. Uh, that came from FBI Director Christopher Wray, also Mark E. Green himself, all saying the threat has risen, and that's due to the rise in terrorist threats, both at home and abroad, but also in many other areas, such as the border. That's right. Also, fentanyl coming across the border, the threat of nuclear weapons, of course, remaining from Iran. And we'll have a lot more on that throughout the next hour. Let's tune into the hearing. The Committee on Homeland Security will come to order. Without objection, the chair may declare the committee in recess at any point. Without objection, the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Kamek, is permitted to sit on the dais and ask questions to the witness. The purpose of this hearing is to receive testimony on the full scale, scope, and pace of threats posed to the homeland. I now recognize myself for an opening statement. 22 years have passed since September the 11th. Since then, the nature of the threats we face has evolved, and the security, challenge, security challenges are becoming more dynamic each day. I don't say this lightly. This is one of the most dangerous times in the history of the United States. Some of the greatest threats include an open and lawless southwest border. Ask any border sheriff, or for that matter, the mayor of New York City, the rising threat of terrorism, rogue nation state actors and criminal elements seeking to do us harm, and efforts by foreign adversaries like the Chinese Communist Party to target our critical infrastructure. Of course, we also have the wars in Israel and Ukraine and rising Chinese aggression in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. To overcome these significant challenges, we must take a clear-eyed and holistic look at these threats. First, we're facing an unprecedented crisis at our southwest border. In just three years, the administration has systematically dismantled our nation's border security and created the worst border crisis in American history. While my friends on the left defend these actions, though now maybe less so than they did at the start, it is clear that this crisis is not the result of budget cuts, changes in Border Patrol resources, or changes in the immigration laws passed by Congress. What has changed was the cancellation of effective policies that had secured our borders. The Biden administration ended proven policies like Remain in Mexico, asylum cooperative agreements, and construction of new border wall systems. As a result, people tested the system, were released into the country, called home, and millions more came. A lot like a college town bar that doesn't card. Before long, they have a line out the door. Worse, as acknowledged by A.G. Garland, uh, Attorney General Garland, the drug cartels have taken advantage of this policy shift and executed a strategy pushing mass waves of people to tie up Border Patrol and then bypass them with thousands of pounds of fentanyl, killing Americans at an unprecedented rate. Worse, as acknowledged by AG General, uh, Attorney General Garland, 
The drug cartels have taken advantage of this policy shift and executed a strategy that is tying, basically resulting in mass human trafficking. Under Secretary Mayorkas, we just saw a record-breaking year for illegal immigration. CBP reported 2.47 million alien encounters along the southwest border in fiscal year 2023. Since taking office, Secretary Mayorkas has overseen more than 6.5 million southwest border encounters, 7.8 million nationwide encounters, and more than 1.8 million known gotaways. All records. To put this into perspective, the number of illegal immigrants who've entered our country since President Biden took office is greater than the population of 33 of our nation's states. I'll repeat that. More than 33 out of our 50 states. Furthermore, under Secretary Mayorkas, violent Mexican cartels are making record profits. In fact, the New York Times reported that cartels earned around $500 million a year in 2018 on human smuggling. Today, they earn an estimated $13 billion. The failure of this administration's border policies has created a humanitarian and national security crisis as transnational criminal organizations prey on vulnerable migrants and sneak across violent felons and individuals on the terrorist watch list. And yet, Secretary Mayorkas has continued to mislead Congress and the American people, claiming that this is what a secure border looks like. Second. Malicious activity by nation-state actors and terrorism poses a direct threat to the United States homeland. Without question, the homeland is less safe under this president. The catastrophic Afghanistan withdrawal two years ago signaled weakness and a lack of leadership to the world. Our nation's adversaries have been emboldened to attack our allies and our friends and are undermining our security here at home. Significant threats to our cities and our local communities are only growing. As each of you recently testified before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, foreign terrorist organizations, including those supported by Tehran, have gained a sense of momentum following Hamas's brutal terrorist attack against Israel last month. These terrorist organizations continue to call for attacks against the U.S. at home and abroad. This includes al-Qaeda, which, as Director Ray has pointed out, has issued its most specific call to attack the U.S. in the last five years. As our adversaries seek to further destabilize the Middle East, we must confront how these threats directly impact our own homeland security. According to DHS, 294 aliens whose name appear on the terrorist watch list were stopped trying to cross our southwest border between ports of entry since FY 2021. Compare that with 11 individuals stopped in the four years before FY 2017 through 2020. We are tuned into the House hearing on worldwide threats to homeland security chaired by Mark E. Green, a Republican from Tennessee. He's talking about the issue at hand. Uh, he's saying that we're in one of the most dangerous times in our nation's history. After October 7th, uh, terror attack on Israel by Hamas. Terrorists around the world have been using that event to inspire and rally um, one another. And at the same time, we've seen 172 people on the terrorist watch list come across the U.S. border uh, in the fiscal year ending September 30th. Um, and that's just 
the, the ones we know about. We do know that there have been 1.7 million known Godaways. Mark Green mentioned 8 million known Godaways, actually, but in his report that he released to the public, uh, he said 1.7 million. And, you know, this, these are people that we don't, we don't know who they are. Um, they're just coming across the border. We know that they have come across the border, but we don't know who they are. And among those could be uh, even more people on the terror watch list. So, you know, we really just don't know what's, what, what could be happening um, right here in our country. That's right, and Congressman Green also mentioned regarding the border, the issue of fentanyl and cartels, discussing how the, the cartels distract Border Patrol at the border to traffic in, obviously, humans, but also drugs, which then go on to be the leading cause of death for uh, young people aged 25 to 40, I believe. So there's a real issue here right within our border. We do, we do know that a lot of these people were released into the, into the interior and may never show up to their uh, appointments with CBP. That's right, and coming back to that fentanyl issue, um, you know, it's, it's estimated about 70,000 people have died from fentanyl overdoses in the past, in, in 2022, I believe it was. That's significantly more than the number of soldiers that died in the Vietnam War. Um, we'll also hear about other threats to homeland security. I mentioned the nuclear threat. Um, we know that, that China is buying oil from Iran despite sanctions on, on Iran, and to the tune of $80 billion in recent years. And Iran itself is, the, is known as the largest state sponsor of terror here uh, by the U.S. State Department. Right, and we also heard just now about foreign state threats, state actors, so Iran obviously being a, an enemy of the U.S., but we also heard about the Chinese Communist Party in some way. Uh, Green mentioned the tensions on the, in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. There are many areas um, regarding the Chinese Communist Party that present a threat to the homeland. We'll likely hear more about those, but um, this issue with Iran, Iran is getting more funds through selling its oil and also through recent uh, sales to other nations that have been, where sanctions have been waived. So the U.S. does play a role in many of these external international inter relations as well. Right, and coming back to the threat of terrorism, I mean, everybody remembers 9-11. Um, you know, over 3,000 American citizens died that day. And, um, you know, it, all it takes is one person or a handful of people here to make something like that happen again. Um, so this issue is, is highly important, which is why we're tuning into this hearing. We'll have more on the hearing on worldwide threats to Homeland Security after the break. We are tuned into the House hearing on worldwide threats to Homeland Security hosted by the Committee on Homeland Security in the House of Representatives. Uh, the committee chair is Mark E. Green, a Republican from Tennessee. We just heard him opening the hearing, you know, talking about a variety of threats to the U.S. right now. I mean, obviously there's the war in Israel and the threat that 
uh, terror groups backed by Iran poses. There's uh, Ukraine and the situation there. You know what happens if in 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 um, <clears throat> Ukraine if Ukraine loses that war? Um, could Russia keep going into the into the rest of Europe? And then of course there's Taiwan. Um, if Taiwan falls, you know Hong Kong is has already been um, is subject to CCP rule. What if Taiwan? And then what 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 happens next after that? There's so many possibilities. And not to mention the possibility of the U.S. facing a war on three different fronts and what that would do to its own resources and capability to defend itself. That's right. And he, ho he honed in on the issue at the border, citing you know millions of known Godaways people who have come across the border that nobody knows who they are and could be potential terrorists. So let's tune back into the hearing. This committee has also deemed demanded information on individuals from Uzbekistan and other countries who used a smuggler with ties to ISIS to enter the United States through our southwest border. We also demanded information on DHS's screening and vetting of Afghan evacuees in the wake of our catastrophic withdrawal. Most recently, we've requested documents and information from both DHS and the FBI on terrorist threats at the southwest border. The department and FBI's delays and lack of responsiveness have become an unacceptable pattern. Make no mistake, we will continue to use every tool at our disposal to secure these answers for the American people. I look forward to a productive conversation about the current threats to our homeland and the actions being taken to prevent them. I thank our witnesses for being here, and I look forward to your testimony. I now recognize the ranking member, the gentleman from Mississippi, Mr. Thompson, for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good morning and welcome to our witnesses, Secretary Mayorkas, Director Ray, and Director Abizade. Uh, we welcome you. With one notable exception, during the prior administration, you and your predecessors have regularly come before this committee to discuss security threats facing the homeland and how your department and agencies are keeping our country safe. Thank you for being here today and for your service. And please convey our thanks to the dedicated public servants who work for you and for all of us every day. This worldwide threats hearing takes place with a war going on in the Middle East, persistent threats from foreign terrorist organization and domestic violent extremists and surging anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. We are seeing more sophisticated cyber attacks, unprecedented global migration, and have a presidential election less than a year away. The list of issues critical to the homeland goes on. My Democratic colleagues and I plan to ask you about these issues, and we stand ready and willing, as always, to work with you to address these challenges on behalf of the American people. Unfortunately, my Republican colleagues have a different agenda today. And we need to be clear about what their agenda really means from the outset of this hearing. Republicans are directly politically motivated attacks at administration witnesses, and they are doing so to distract from Republicans' own failures at governing. Their infighting and their support for a Republican presidential candidate who is himself a threat to democracy. That's what some people in Washington do rather than take responsibility for their own failures 
And to be sure, Republicans have failed at running the House of Representatives. They ousted their own speaker, paralyzing the House and bringing the legislative process to a standstill for weeks as they fought among themselves. They can't manage to pass bills to fund the government. Instead, they have abruptly pulled spending bills from the House floor and have gone from near shutdown to near shutdown despite the harm it caused to our government, our economy, and our security. They appear on TV to rant about border security, and they issue bogus so-called reports replete with false statements and racist rhetoric about the border. Other complain about bookstores refusing to sell their propaganda. But when it comes to actually paying for border security personnel and resources or passing legitimate border security legislation, they are AWOL. They talk tough about strengthening our cyber defenses, but then vote to slash funding for the agency charged with that important mission. They revere their presidential candidate who admires dictators and despots, calling them capable, competent, and smart, who recently refer referred to his political opponents as vermin and threatened to use the Justice Department against them. Who talks about erecting, quote, detention camps, unquote, on United States soil? Republicans don't want to own up to it or deal with any of that. So rather than getting their own house in order, they direct baseless attacks at the administration and Secretary Mayorkas in particular. We know their extreme mega members are desperate to impeach someone, anyone at all. They're on a crusade to impeach the Secretary, although there's zero justification for it. Unlike the Trump administration, the Biden administration has followed the law on border security and immigration. Claiming asylum at the border is lawful. If my Republican colleagues don't like the law, well, they're in the majority. Try to change it. The prior administration also refused to provide information sought by Congress in more than 100 congressional inquiries. But this administration has been and continues to be responsive to Congress. It is my understanding today's hearing is Secretary Mayorkas's 27th time testifying before Congress is being confirmed as Secretary. Under his leadership, DHS has responded to more than 1,400 congressional letters and produced more than 11,000 pages of documents to this committee alone. We are tuned in to a House hearing on Worldwide threats to the homeland. We just heard from Congressman Bernie Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, and also the chairman, Mark E. Green. And we'll get into that, but we're just going to look at how big this issue really is. Um, this hearing, you know, is one of a series. We just had the Senate holding a similar, similar hearing last month. Um, Mark E. Green has recently said that, you know, the U.S. is facing a heightened risk and also Christopher Ray also said that. We do know that Republicans have really been trying to, um, some Republicans have really been trying to um, really take down um, Mayorkas for his role at, in border policies. We just heard from Bernie Thompson there uh, lambasting those actions. Uh, but 
but um, Benny Thompson. But uh, we do know that this is a really big issue. Um, it's a national priority area. Yeah, that's right. You know, talking about uh, record terror encounters, like I mentioned before, 169 coming across the southern border. If you add three, that's up to, from the northern border, that's 172 for the fiscal year ending September 30th. Um, we, 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 that, you know, just a few years ago, that number was less than 10, uh, to give you a sense of that. Um, we've seen um, 7.2 million uh, border patrol encounters, encounters with border patrol uh, since the Biden administration took office. And um, uh, excuse me, that's uh, 2.47 million since in the fiscal year 2023. Um, that's a 40% increase from uh, 2021, where we saw 1.7 million, and a more than 100% increase from 2019 before Biden took office. And like I was saying, among these people, um, you know, there are, there are people on the terror watch list that have been apprehended and those uh, who, who haven't. Yeah, so in fiscal year 2023, uh, Border Patrol arrested 151 people on the terror watch list, and that is up from 15 arrests in 2021. It's quite a jump. Um, so if we think about the border, um, as many have described it as a crisis, as a sort of front of its own, then there are potentially four fronts the, that the U.S. could potentially be facing in terms of threats. You know, um, there's Ukraine the in, in, in the physical sense. Yeah. Um, so, so, so what else are we looking at? The border, Israel-Hamas war. There's obviously Ukraine uh, is a destabilizing factor. Um, and... And there's calls for acts of terror by ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations around the world. Some of those may be inciting acts here at home. Um, right. Iran has actually called for global intifada um, or holy war. And Hamas, just days after the terror attack, called, a, called for a global day of jihad. And we saw you know, protests in the hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. um, people around the world. Um, yeah, echoing the voices of Hamas and some of these protests, uh, you know, featuring uh, or including anti-Semitic sentiment in a not so, in an overt way. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what we're looking at here is, uh, is something else that Thompson pointed to was the fact that an election is coming up, you know, and um, something that we want to keep in mind is how things have shifted, and we're, we're just looking at the facts, pulling this all apart, seeing what policies work and what don't. We're going to hear more about that after the break. Stay tuned. We are tuned into a House hearing on the worldwide threats uh, to homeland security here in the U.S. Um, we're, let's take a look at Congressman Markey Green, the chairman of the committee for this hearing. You know, under him, he created the, the uh, report from, the, the, under him, the Homeland Security Committee created the report from which we drew many of the numbers that we talked about before, um, you know, concerning the border, which seems to be his number one issue um, in regards to Homeland Security. Um, he said on Fox, the U.S. is at a heightened risk and the open po door policy at the U.S. southern border is largely to blame. Um, he said terrorists have the ability to recruit 
American citizens, you know, through the internet, radicalizing people um, right here on U.S. soil, and he warned of lone wolf terrorists. And this is, as we've mentioned, um, Iran is calling for global intifada or holy war. Um, so let's let's tune back into the hearing to hear uh, what else congressmen and the witnesses have to say about Homeland Security right now. Secretary Mayorkas is carrying out his responsibilities as Secretary of Homeland Security, but Republicans don't like this administration's policies. Cabinet secretaries shouldn't be impeached over policy differences. That's not what the Constitution says. That's not what the founders intended. They certainly shouldn't be impeached to distract from Republican failures or to appease the extreme mega element that has overtaken their party. Rather than this impeachment distraction, we should be focused on how Congress and administration can work together to secure the homeland. That's what this committee has done since its inception. That's what we were sent here to do, and that's what the American people expect of us. It's a shame my Republican colleagues are working their own agenda instead because of this committee and this Congress and our homeland suffers because of it. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. The gentleman yields. Uh, other members of the committee are reminded that opening statements may be submitted for the record, and I'm pleased to have an important uh, panel of witnesses before us today, and I ask that our witnesses please rise and raise their right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you will give before the Committee on Homeland Security of the United States House of Representatives will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Let the record reflect that the witnesses have answered in the affirmative. Thank you. You may be seated. I would now like to formally introduce our witnesses. The Honorable Alejandro Mayorkas was sworn in as Secretary of Department of Homeland Security by President Biden on February the 2nd of 2021. Mr. Mayorkas has had a 30-year career as a law enforcement official and a lawyer in private sector. From 2013 to 2016, he served as the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and as the Director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services from 2009 to 2013. The Honorable Christopher Wray became the eighth director of the FBI. On August 2, 2017, Mr. Wray started his law enforcement career in 1997, serving in the Department of Justice as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. The Honorable Christine Abizade was sworn in as the Director of National Counterterrorism Center on June 29th of 2021. She is the eighth Senate-confirmed director and the first woman to lead the United States counterterrorism enterprise. Previously, she served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia. I thank all the witnesses for being here today, and I now recognize Secretary Mayorkas for five minutes to summarize his opening statement. Chairman Green, Ranking Member Thompson, distinguished members of this committee. In September, the Department of Homeland Security published the 2024 Homeland Threat Assessment, laying out the most direct, pressing threats to our security. Already, in the weeks since the assessment was published, the world has changed. Hamas terrorists horrifically attacked thousands of innocent men, women, and children in Israel on October 7, brutally murdering wounding, and taking hostages of all ages. In the days and weeks since, we have responded to an increase in threats against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab American communities and institutions across our country. 
hate directed at Jewish students, communities, and institutions add to a pre-existing increase in the level of anti-Semitism in the United States and around the world. As the last month has shown, the threat environment our department is charged with confronting has evolved and expanded constantly in the 20 years since our founding after 9-11. Today, individuals radicalized to violence can terrorize using a vehicle or a firearm. A transnational criminal organization needs only to conceal 2.2 pounds of fentanyl in a commercial truck or passenger car crossing through our land port of entry to kill as many as half a million people. Lone actors in nation states such as Russia, Iran, North Korea, and the People's Republic of China can use computer code to steal sensitive personal information, shut down critical infrastructure, and extort millions in ransom payments. Compromising deepfake images can exploit and ruin the life of a young person. Extreme heat, wildfires, and devastating hurricanes are increasing in frequency and severity. And our department's founding rationale, the threat posed by foreign terrorists using weapons of mass destruction, remains. The 260,000 men and women of the Department of Homeland Security work every day to mitigate these threats and many more. I am immensely proud to be here today on their behalf to discuss the work they do, the challenges they face, and most importantly, the support they require from Congress to do their jobs. Thank you for the opportunity to do so. I would like to focus today on two such means of critical, urgent support. First, Congress must now not allow key DHS authorities to lapse. Our department's authority to implement the chemical facility anti-terrorism standards expired on Jan July 28th. That means the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is barred from inspecting over 3,000 high-risk chemical facilities, including one in Shepherd, Texas, where an explosion last week forced nearby communities to shelter in place for hours. We are also barred from identifying who is accessing them and whether they are stockpiling dangerous chemicals. Historically, more than a third of inspections identify at least one gap in a facility's security. We're tuned into a House hearing on worldwide threats to the homeland. We just heard from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas right there, speaking about how the world has profoundly changed since, uh, since October 7th and how the threats to the homeland have profoundly changed since then. Of course, there's been an increase in threats, both to specific groups of people and to organizations and just generally including everyday Americans through fentanyl and other areas. Um, but Speaking about Alejandro Mayorkas, he's been in the news quite recently, um, not the least for the vote that was waged against him um, trying to impeach him in the House. House Democrats and eight Republicans voted that down, that effort led by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene um, trying to impeach him. But some of the Republicans who voted against the impeachment have since said why they did not vote for it. Representative McClintock's office told Fox News that um, grounds for impe an impeachment are explicitly laid out in the co Constitution. And while he believes that he, Mayorkas is the worst cabinet secretary in American history, he does not believe that, that impeachment is the right fit. Representative Buck also said the same thing, saying, quote, 
telling CNN this time, quote, I disagree strongly with how he's handling the border. I think the border is porous. I think it's a threat to the country, he said. But, he said, it's not a high crime or misdemeanor. It's not treason. It's not bribery. It's not the crimes or issues our founders set forth in the Constitution. So that's a recent um, event for Mayorkas, obviously mostly focused on the border and his role in that. Yep, that's right. Uh, you know, and he's quoted as having said, and he has said, the border is closed in reference to the southern border, and that's despite the numbers that we've mentioned before, you know, 1.7 million known gotaways under the Biden administration. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, he, he also spoke about, you know, threats from lone actors, deep fake imagery, um, the threat by terrorists using weapons of mass destruction. It's actually very similar to the testimony he gave on October 31st about Homeland Security. Um, during that, he, he talked about how uh, you know, we need to continue funding for um, organizations that, you know, for example, um, uh, uh, facilitate inspections of chemical facilities. You know, these facilities can be um, actually robbed in some places. Um, he talked about counter drone authority, um, you know, uh, that'll expire soon, the, the funding for that. So basically, in some cases, you know, drones pose a real threat uh, to people in large groups. Um, terrorists can use drones to attack people in large groups. They can also, like cartels can send drugs across the border using drones. That's he right. spoke about that. That's right. And in the previous, in the Senate hearing on October 31st, Christopher Wray also spoke. And he pointed out some of the issues with the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which we may or may not get to. But some of those include, obviously, stealing intellectual property. That's, that does pose a, 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 th a threat to the homeland. Um, but also, this fentanyl, its role in, um, in creating the precursor drugs, precursor chemicals to create that drug. Um, and we also know that there's been a wild increase in people coming across the border from China, traveling across the border from Mexico. So we're going to tune into more of this hearing, but uh, first up, we'll, tune in, we'll have a break. Welcome back. We are tuned into the House hearing on the worldwide threats to homeland security. Um, we just heard from Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security, and we're expecting to hear from him again once we get back into the hearing. Um, we might get into FBI Director Christopher Wray, uh, but in the previous hearing that I mentioned just a few minutes ago on October 31st, he said, the reality is that the terrorism threat has been elevated throughout 2023, but the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level. So that's really the backdrop of this hearing and the previous hearing on October 31st, the Hamas terror attack um, October 7th on Israel, where you know 1,300 um, Israelis died, most of them civilians, men, women, and children, and it absolutely just shocked the world. And there's been huge conflict surrounding this, and uh, groups aligned with terrorists uh, and terrorist groups, you know, mobilizing after this. Um, so the threat to homeland security from terrorists has increased. Since and then. 
Uh, yes, and Mayorkas um, in the previous hearing that we just mentioned also brought up um, as one of the issues the Chinese Communist regime as well. We do know that Biden is meeting with or is set to meet with uh, Xi Jinping, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party at the APEC meeting. and. He's expected to speak with Xi about the military, use of AI in the military, fentanyl, and other threats that are, are top of mind for the U.S. in terms of homeland security. So we'll see how that pans out, too. But let's head into the last segment of this hearing on our broadcast and see what, what, what we see. Our counter-drone authority will expire on Saturday, challenging, among other missions, the Secret Service's ability to protect the President and Vice President and Customs and Border Protection's ability to patrol the southwest border and intercept cartel drones ferrying drugs and other contraband through the air. Our weapons, our Department's Office of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Authority will expire on December 21. That would hinder our ability to detect biological and illicit nuclear material threats and safeguard against the use of AI in the development of biological weapons, as President Biden charged us with doing last month in his executive order on artificial intelligence. Finally, key elements of our intelligence collection authority under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act will expire on December 31. Expiration would leave our country vulnerable to attacks supported by American citizens and it would cripple our ability to identify and secure American citizens who are the targets of such attacks. Renewing each of these four authorities is common sense, bipartisan, and critical to our national security. This is not a moment to let our guard down. Second, we need Congress to allocate sufficient resources to enable our nation's frontline officers to carry out their difficult jobs and keep the American people safe. Last month, our administration requested critical supplemental homeland security funding that would help us do just that. This funding package would allow us to more effectively combat the scourge of fentanyl, stem the impacts of historic migration, and accelerate work authorization for eligible non-citizens. This funding will, in short, make a critical difference in our department's operational capacity and in our national security. Ensuring the safety of the American people is a national imperative and a governmental obligation. I look forward to partnering with Congress to deliver for the men and women who keep our country safe. I look forward to working with you to address the threats and challenges America faces today and in the years to come. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Secretary Mayorkas. I now recognize Director Ray for five minutes to summarize his opening statement. Thank you, and good morning, Chairman Green, Ranking Member Thompson, members of the committee. It's been more than five weeks since Hamas terrorists carried out their brutal attacks against innocent Israelis, dozens of American citizens, and others from around the world. And our collective efforts remain on supporting our partners overseas and seeking the safe return of the hostages. But this hearing, well, focused on threats to our homeland, is well-timed given the dangerous implications the fluid situation in the Middle East has for our homeland security. In a year where the terrorism threat was already elevated, the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole nother level. Since October 7th, we've seen a rogues gallery of foreign terrorist organizations call for attacks against Americans 
and our allies. Hezbollah expressed its support and praise for Hamas and threatened to attack U.S. interests in the Middle East. Al-Qaeda issued its most specific call to attack the United States in the past five years. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula called on jihadists to attack Americans and Jewish people everywhere. ISIS urged its followers to target Jewish communities in the United States and Europe. Given those calls for action, our most immediate concern is that individuals or small groups will draw twisted inspiration from the events in the Middle East to carry out attacks here at home. That includes homegrown violent extremists inspired by a foreign terrorist organization and domestic violent extremists targeting Jewish Americans or other faith communities like Muslim Americans. Across the country, the FBI has been aggressively countering violence by extremists citing the ongoing conflict as inspiration. In Houston, we arrested a guy who'd been studying bomb making and posted about killing Jewish people. Outside Chicago, we've got a federal hate crime investigation into the killing of a six-year-old Muslim boy. At Cornell University, we arrested a man who threatened to kill members of that university's Jewish community. And in Los Angeles, we arrested a man for threatening the CEO and other members of the Anti-Defamation League. And I could go on. On top of the so-called lone actor threat, we cannot and do not discount the possibility that Hamas or another foreign terrorist organization may exploit the current conflict to conduct attacks here on our own soil. We have kept our sights on Hamas and have multiple investigations into individuals affiliated with that foreign terrorist organization. And while historically our Hamas cases have identified individuals here who are facilitating and financing terrorism overseas, we continue to scrutinize our intelligence to assess how that threat may be evolving. But it's not just Hamas. As I highlighted for this committee in my testimony last year, Iran the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism has directly or by hiring criminals mounted assassination attempts against dissidents and high-ranking current and former U.S. officials, including right here on American soil. Or take Hezbollah, Iran's primary strategic partner, which has a history of raising money and seeking to obtain weapons here in the United States. Hearing there from FBI Director Christopher Wray speaking to a House hearing on worldwide threats to the homeland. Um, that's chaired by Congressman Mark E. Green, who we heard from earlier. Christopher Wray there laying out many cases of worldwide threats uh, from, from terrorist organizations targeting Americans and others around the world and calls for threats. Um, and also we heard earlier about the border from other of the speakers. Um, we do know some of the recent developments being that the Biden administration said last month that they would build up to 20 miles of border barriers that were authorized during the Trump administration in Texas's Rio Grande Valley. Um, of course, they're sending more resources to the border as well, though not necessarily to, to uh, shut off the border, but just to deal with the inflow of people. Um, though we do know that President Biden has said that he doesn't think this, this wall will be effective. That is one of the recent uh, events down there. Right, yeah, and 
Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray talked about you know, ex Hezbollah expressing praise for Hamas. Um, he's talking about Al-Qaeda you know, becoming more threatening recently. And he said he's concerned, one of the biggest concerns is that small groups could, be, could, get, could have some sort of twisted inspiration from the attack by Hamas on October 7th, you know, looking up to it. And oddly enough, it echoes the, the voice of one Cornell University professor who said he was exhilarated by the acts of Hamas, the horrifying acts of Hamas yeah. on October 7th. And he also talked about, um, the, you know, on that campus in Cornell University, the, a man was arrested for threatening to kill Jewish men, women, and children there. Yeah, there have been um, many acts of horror and, and terror on this uh, soil. We heard from Christopher Ray just there talking about instances of lone, lone actor threats that the FBI has taken down and has addressed. He said he could go on and on, um, including a man who was thought to be making bombs or could have been making bombs, preparing to make bombs and talking about killing Jews. So the kinds of the kinds of things that you mostly see in other countries um, seem to be inching closer to, to people here in the U.S. That's right. And this, this hearing is, um, you know, maybe two or three hours long. We only have enough time to cover, uh, you know, the, the segments that you saw over the past hour. But, we, but please stay tuned to NTD News. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Is the current U.S. strategic posture sufficient to fend off foreign threats? An expert says America needs to be prepared for conflict on multiple fronts. The increasing importance of artificial intelligence technology in foreign policy and geopolitics. Federal officials are testifying in a Senate committee hearing on the issue. The United States allegedly funding terrorism. The government sent billions of dollars to Afghanistan since the Taliban took over. What's that money go doing? Victims of the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses protesting Xi Jinping in San Francisco. Their stories and what the protests mean for the upcoming Biden-Xi meeting, Iris Kao reports for us. UAW's deal with General Motors may be in jeopardy. A vote on the tentative contract is too close to call as more tallies are reported. How likely could strikes resume? Our business host, Don Mott, tells us more. A stranded sheep is rescued from a cliff in the Scottish Highlands. The woolly mammal turns into an international celebrity after her recovery. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. Is the United States' strategy still sufficient to fend off foreign threats? A House committee hearing is examining the latest report by the U.S. Strategic Posture Commission. The commission concluded that U.S. defense strategy and posture must change to properly defend its vital interests and improve strategic stability with Russia and China. Given the current threat trajectories, in the coming years the U.S. will face a world with two nations 
that possess nuclear weapons, nuclear arsenals on par with our own. Facing, deterring two nuclear weapons is unprecedented. Strategic Posture released a report last month. It was their first report since 2009. The report found that the current U.S. nuclear force isn't sufficient enough to deal with future threats posed by the Chinese Communist regime and Russia. The commission highlighted a need to bolster conventional military forces and address a shrinking nuclear workforce. Madeleine Creedon, chair of the commission, also said the U.S. should prepare for the potential of a two-theater conflict. And also today, a hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is examining U.S. leadership on artificial intelligence. Two cyber officials from the State Department offered their testimonies. A determined and well-resourced set of adversaries and competitors tirelessly advance a very different view of technology's role in our future. They are aggressively trying to reshape the international rules-based order and are investing heavily in a worldview that prioritizes authoritarian tactics over democratic values and governance. Technology governance, and specifically AI governance, is one of the geopolitical imperatives of our time. The two officials are testifying are Nathaniel Fick, the ambassador-at-large for cyberspace and digital policy, and Matthew Gravis, the chief artificial intelligence officer at the State Department. Fick highlighted the increasing importance of AI in foreign policy and geopolitics, saying the U.S. must lead in the technology. The hearing came after President Biden signed an executive order on AI technology last month. The order seeks to ensure the safety of AI technology by implementing a society-wide effort on it. The FBI is conducting multiple investigations into people it believes are affiliated with Hamas. That's what Director Christopher Wray is expected to tell a House panel today. According to prepared remarks, he will highlight the global terror threat stemming from the Israel-Hamas war. Wray's most immediate concern is homegrown violent extremists inspired by the foreign terror organization, as well as violent extremists targeting Jewish and Muslim, Muslim Americans, like we were talking bef about before in our coverage of the hearing. Even so, Ray will encourage Americans to go about their daily lives. Rally organizers say 290,000 people joined a pro-Israel march in Washington yesterday. This while highly sensitive IDF operations are underway in Gaza. Hamas terrorists operate out of hospitals and other civilian infrastructure. The Israeli Defense Force is conducting surgical strikes in and around these facilities to root out Hamas. Let's hear from senior counsel at the Lawfare Project, Gerard Felitti, about the IDF's tactics and Hamas's controversial bases. Gerard Felitti, thank you for joining us again. The IDF says it conducted, it's conducting a precise and targeted operation against Hamas in a specified area of the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. Tell us about why Israel is targeting hospitals in this way. Well, it's not that it's targeting hospitals. First of all, thank you for having me. It, it's not targeting hospitals. It's targeting Hamas, which is embedded in the hospitals. Hamas has long used hospitals, including Al-Shifa Hospital, as a command and control center. They locate their bunkers and tunnels under the hospital. They have munitions storage under the hospital. Basically, they're using the hospital as cover to conduct attacks against Israel. So Israel is not going into the hospital for the sake of, of, its, of its pride, so to speak. It's going in there with a targeted objective of eliminating Hamas, which which has been using this hospital. 
Now, the Pentagon has confirmed the Israeli Defense Forces claims that Hamas operates out of hospitals in Gaza, something that's been contested by skeptics. Tell us about the history of this and the discoveries that have been made. Well, the discoveries that have been made, both at uh, Shifa and uh, Rafa Hospital, which was uh, which was gone into a few days ago by Israeli forces as well, showed networks of tunnels, showed storage rooms under the hospital with weapons, including grenades, rocket launchers, and machine guns in them. It showed signs that hostages had been kept in these tunnels and rooms under the hospitals. The, the history there is long. Hamas has developed this network of tunnels under Gaza, as we all know by now, to, to move about under the city undetected to pop up and attack Israel. They used the hospital as cover for launching rocket attacks from nearby parking lots, cemeteries, school grounds. Uh, it basically, Hamas has been using the hospitals and other civilian infrastructure as cover to provide them with the opportunity to pop up, attack civilians in Israel, uh, and then claim that they are being targeted, uh, that, that Israel is targeting the civilian population when Israel responds. Gerard, let's zoom out a little bit or come maybe back to the U.S. here. 290,000 people marched for Israel and against anti-Semitism in D.C. just yesterday. The CEO of a major Jewish organization called it the largest pro-Israel gathering in history. What's the significance of this rally and, um, you know, as anti-Semitism soars yeah, around the world? Well, the, the significance of this rally is that it's empowering the Jewish people to see that we can all come together in Washington, D.C. and make the voices of the Jewish people heard and how many people there are that are affected by the anti-Semitism and the attacks in Israel that we see. The, the true significance is that this shows the power of the Jewish community coming together to address these issues. And really, it's just the beginning. Through, through movements like the End Jew Hatred Movement, which also gathered in D.C. yesterday, we're seeing Jews empowered to stand up to anti-Semitism on college campuses, to file lawsuits asserting their rights under the law, their civil rights protections, to stand up and fight when they see hate crimes occurring and demand prosecution. Yesterday was the culmination of efforts for many years to highlight the issues of anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, it took this horrific war to get here, but now it is so empowering to see people coming together to stand up in support for the Jewish community. And just in closing here, how can Americans continue to support yeah, Jewish Americans and the Jewish community? This is really an opportunity for Americans, for any person of good conscience and morals to stand up and say that what's happening to Jews, what's happening to Israelis is wrong. It's morally wrong. That Jews are a minority community entitled to equal rights under the law, entitled to civil protection, and that Jews should be treated no differently than any other minority. Really, this is an opportunity for all of Americans to recognize the minority rights of the Jewish people, just as we have for other minority groups. All right, Gerard Feliti, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. The U.S. keeps funding Afghanistan even now that the Taliban are in control. America sent $2.5 billion in aid since the chaotic withdrawal in 2001, 2021. The money is supposed to go to international nonprofits in Afghanistan. However, a witness testified this week saying the money is being diverted. Now, many would like to believe that we are aiding the Afghan people while successfully bypassing the Taliban. This can be viewed as a useful fiction, as it reassures but ignores the fact that it is impossible to entirely bypass the Taliban regime. John Sopko is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. 
He told the House lawmakers that his team is trying to investigate money sent to Afghanistan. However, he said the State Department is not complying. The department is allegedly delaying reports and even instructing employees not to speak with the Inspector General. SOPCO says U.S. taxpayer money may now be funding terrorism. He added that providing humanitarian assistance to a country like Afghanistan always comes with trade-offs. A new bill is headed to the Senate after the House passed its laddered continuing resolution yesterday. Senators are likely to vote yes, and Biden has indicated he's likely to sign off on it, averting a government shutdown for now. Earlier, I spoke with Vance Ginn, formerly chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget, and now serving as president of Ginn Economic Consulting. Vance, thanks so much for joining us. To begin with, Congress has frequently resorted to continuing appropriations resolutions due to budgetary delays. How do these temporary measures affect long-term budget planning and economic stability? And what can be done about it? Well, it's great to be with you, and it hurts. It hurts economic stability and financial stability in particular because you don't know what is going to happen in the future. You don't know what those federal funds are going to be, which also influences taxpayers because they don't know how much in taxes that they're going to pay over time given the increase in the deficit and everything else. And look, we're at 34, nearly $34 trillion in national debt. Just net interest payments on the alone are a trillion dollars now. This is really hurting Americans. And so when you see all this uncertainty, you see the dysfunction out of Congress, it really starts starts to um, you know, kind of go through a ripple effect throughout the rest of the economy. And business investment is also influenced. Now, at the same time, you know, we don't have a lot of um, increases in economic growth from federal funding, as that's all going to be taken out of the private sector. And that's why it leads to this uncertainty throughout the economy. And would that be the same for just within itself, the threat of a government shutdown? What kind of impact does that have? Well, it, it has an impact in the sense that it hurts a lot of the federal employees. There could be some furloughs that happen over a period of time. It could also influence some of the contracts that are paid out to private businesses for you know military um, products or, or, or equipment and everything. And so there could be a lot of other influences throughout the economy. Um, at the same time, I, I really think we've got to look at this is a, an important situation that we have a fiscal crisis on our hands right now. We've got to get spending under control or we're going to continue to see higher interest rates and higher inflation. So how do you suggest that Congress could create some kind of more streamlined process or somehow work towards a, a process that doesn't include frequent uh, continuing resolutions? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And it's one that's basically happened over most of the last 30, 30 years. <laughs> We've had very few times where they passed a budget on time, which is another reason why it shows the dysfunction of Congress, where they have these 12 bills that go through different appropriations, and then that is passed in order to make a full budget cycle. At the last time I've checked, I think they've only passed four of those bills out of the 12, so only a third of the way there, and we're, full, and we're, and we're way into this current fiscal year. Um, and so what I think what, at the end of the day, what we need to have is one budget like many states do across the country, instead of having all these different budget bills, let's have one budget to pass. I think that will help. But we also need spending limits. There should be fiscal restraints on the budget, because if not, you get this runaway spending that we've had over the last couple of years. And, and you know what? Over just the, since June, there's already been nearly $2 trillion added to the national debt. Just since June, and over the last couple of months, it's been over $500 billion. This is a massive amount of money that all hurts the economy in the process. So what alternative strategies would you suggest to both balance the budget and ensure, you know, government fiscal responsibility? Well, I think what we really need is a sustainable budget. 
We need a budget that grows by no more than the the number the wages of people measured by population growth, more people, and, and, and inflation that's connected to wage growth over time. So population growth plus inflation has been a good measure to use by other countries. Colorado has a spending limit like this. Texas has a spending similar like this. These are the states that have done a better job of spending over time. And if we did that at the federal level, we could have a, a, a much more balanced approach. In fact, since 2000, had the federal had, had Congress been pat, passing budgets that have matched population growth plus inflation, we would have had only a $500 billion deficit instead of the more than $2 trillion increase in the national debt you know, over that period of time. All right, thank you so much, Vance Ginn, former chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget and the president of Ginn Economic Consulting. Really appreciate it. Separation of church and state. House Speaker Mike Johnson says religion is vital in maintaining a functioning government because it upholds individuals' morals. Johnson told CNBC the separation of church and state is often misunderstood. Watch. The, the separation of church and state is a, is a misnomer. People misunderstand it. Of course, it comes from a phrase that was in a letter that Jefferson wrote. It's not in the Constitution. And what he was explaining is they did not want the government to encroach upon the church, not that they didn't want principles of faith to have influence on our public life. It's exactly the opposite. Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Johnson has been open about his Christian faith throughout his political career. This has in turn become a point of heightened focus and even criticism from some political commentators. Last month, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki indicated people should be scared of Johnson's ideas. She accused him of being a Christian fundamentalist. Johnson is now making his stance clear, saying religion benefits society and government. And the House Speaker has endorsed Donald Trump for president, making him the highest-ranking Republican so far to back the former president's 2024 bid. The Louisiana Republican made the announcement on the same CNBC show, saying he's, quote, all in for President Trump. While Mike Johnson is a longtime Trump ally, Johnson's endorsement marks a notable departure from Kevin McCarthy, who stopped short of formally backing Trump's third run for the White House. Hunter Biden, the president's son, is seeking to subpoena former President Trump in his criminal gun case. Biden's lawyers wrote to a federal judge that they are seeking specific information from three former DOJ officials and the former president. Hunter Biden has pleaded not guilty to federal crimes related to buying a revolver at a Delaware gun shop in 2018. Prosecutors say he broke the law by lying on a federal form when he swore he was neither using nor addicted to illegal drugs. Speaking of the former president, Trump is asking for a mistrial in his civil fraud case in New York. His defense team filed a motion today alleging overwhelming judicial bias by Judge Arthur Engeron. Trump's lawyers argue the judge has made comments they allege show bias and has also made rulings unfair to their client. Trump has already been fined twice for violating a gag order in the case. How much does having dinner with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping cost? With him now attending the APEC summit, two U.S. business associations have marked up the price, one seat for $40,000. The chairman of the House Select Committee on the CCP calls it unconscionable that American companies would pay to join such a dinner. Here's Chairman Mike Gallagher. 
It's a welcome dinner in honor of CCP officials who are at this moment, in our State Department's own words, conducting genocide against millions of innocent men, women, and children in Xinjiang. So how does that dinner conversation go? Wow, this uh, filet mignon is a little dry. How's your extrajudicial internment of over a million Uyghur Muslims going? This Sauvignon Blanc is really nice. Congrats on completely crushing civil society in Hong Kong. Remember the willingness of the CCP to weaponize market access and supply chain vulnerabilities along with a pension for the theft of intellectual property. Make sure to check for your wallet and your phone on the way out. In the video posted on X, Gallagher called on financial institutions not to sign new deals with companies blacklisted by Washington. Those firms were found supporting the CCP's military buildup and human rights abuses. He warned that doing business with the regime carries risks for employees, investors, and American savings. In closing, he added, quote, 40,000 may buy you a meal with Xi, but it can't buy you a conscience. The tickets were sold by the U.S.-China Business Council and the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. The House panel has requested information on the individuals and companies that purchased the tickets and the association's actions regarding human rights violations in China. As President Biden is set to meet with Chinese dictator Xi Jinping, victims of Beijing's human rights abuses are condemning the regime. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from the APEC summit in San Francisco. As President Biden landed here in San Francisco for the APEC summit, protests are ongoing against the head of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. Earlier on Tuesday, we were outside of the hotel where Xi is reportedly staying with the Chinese delegation, which is right across from here, the summit venue. And we saw this group of anti-CCP protesters who say they're victims of the Chinese Communist Party's human rights persecution in China. And the scene of clashing happens as they confronted a group of pro-CCP people who were reportedly hired by the New York Chinese consulate to come all the way to here to San Francisco to show support for the Chinese communist regime. Let's take a look at the scene and hear what the anti-CCP people had to tell us. So we're right now right outside the hotel where the Chinese delegation is staying here in San Francisco for the APEC summit. And we're seeing a huge group of both pro-CCP and anti-CCP protesters clashing right here with the anti-CCP group yelling that the CCP has been killing people and harming their property and lives, while the other group are also waving the Chinese Communist Party flags. Sources told the Epoch Times that a Chinese consulate in New York hired Chinese locals to come all the way to San Francisco by providing them with free food, free hotel and free flights. And critics say that it's a manifestation of the Chinese Communist Party's exploitation of freedoms here enjoyed on U.S. soil to promote communist ideas. And of course, for the next few days, more protests are planned, especially on Wednesday, which is when President Biden is set to meet with Xi. And now the pressure is mounting for President Biden to emphasize human rights issues with the Chinese dictator. Reporting in San Francisco, Iris Tao, NTD News. Coming up, two transgender contestants will compete at this year's Miss Universe pageant. And the contestant's owner files for bankruptcy before Saturday's event. 
And from cooking fires to accidental injuries, everyday items can pose hidden dangers that ruin a happy holiday. The government is ringing the alarm bells in a dramatic way. And your weather forecast could soon come from artificial intelligence. Google says its new AI model is faster and more accurate. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is pushing for name verification on social media. She wants users to identify their legal names online. Otherwise, she says it's a national security threat. Here's Haley in a Fox News interview. Every person on social media should be verified by their name. That's, first of all, it's a national security threat. When you do that, all of a sudden, people have to stand by what they say, and it gets rid of the Russian bots, the Iranian bots, and the Chinese bots. Haley's proposal is drawing pushback from many of her GOP rivals. Ron DeSantis called it dangerous and unconstitutional. Vivek Ramaswamy said Haley is pushing for censored speech through tech companies and should be disqualified from the presidency. In response to the criticism, Haley's team said America's enemies use anonymous bots to sow chaos and division. They say it's common sense for social media companies to do a better job of verifying users. New Hampshire's Secretary of State is set to announce its presidential primary election date. There are 24 Republicans and 21 Democrats on the ballot, but the incumbent's name is missing. President Biden will not appear on the ticket for the nation's first primary. New Hampshire has traditionally been the first state to hold presidential primaries, but the DNC has chosen South Carolina to kick off this election cycle on February 3rd. New Hampshire officials have rejected the change. They say their state will hold its primary first, regardless of consequences from the DNC. Biden will only be a write-in candidate. New York's congressional districts may be reshaped. The state's Court of Appeals is hearing a gerrymandering case. Democrats are looking to scrap the state's district lines. The party lost enough congressional seats last year that helped Republicans win a narrow majority. Republicans are trying to keep the same lines in place. The maps used in last year's elections were supposed to be drawn by an independent commission, but after failing to reach an agreement, the Democrat-controlled legislature drew its own lines. It was expected to give Democrats a big edge, but the Court of Appeals ruled that legislature hadn't followed proper procedure. The Empire State is expected to be a key battleground next year for seats in the House. Alaska's lieutenant governor declared her candidacy for the state's only House seat on Wednesday. Republican Nancy Dahlstrom vowed to protect Alaska's distinct way of life. She called the Biden administration and Washington liberal agendas an assault on Alaska. Dahlstrom is the second Republican contender competing to unseat Representative Mary Peltola. The Democrat is a former state lawmaker and the first native Alaskan woman to represent the state in Congress. Almost 20% of Alaska's population is indigenous, the highest proportion in the U.S. adopting a ranked choice voting system in 2022 changed Alaska's elections. The upcoming race is set against the backdrop of Alaska's open primary system. The top four candidates advance to the general election regardless of party. And this year's Miss Universe pageant will feature two transgender contestants. Miss Portugal and Miss Netherlands are both men who identify as women. However, the contestant's owner has failed for, filed for bankruptcy. 
JKN Global Group's decision to include trans competitors seem to be an effort to appear more inclusive. A man from Thailand who identifies as a woman acquired the pageant in 2022 for $20 million. At the time, the new owner called the acquisition a strong strategic addition to our portfolio. The annual contest was co-owned by Donald Trump between 1996 and 2002. The pageant is broadcast in 165 countries and has been running for 71 years. Miss Universe 2023 will kick off in El Salvador on Saturday, November 18th. And the Biden administration must resume selling oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico. A federal appeals court dismissed challenges from environmental groups in a ruling yesterday. The decision comes after a series of legal battles, primarily over an endangered whale species. President Biden had temporarily suspended federal drilling auctions as part of his climate agenda. But the Inflation Reduction Act mandated that the lease sales resume in September. Now a three-judge panel has rejected the attempts to block the leases. Environmental groups expressed disappointment and concern over the ruling. The American Petroleum Institute hailed the decision as a victory and emphasized the importance of the Gulf of Mexico for maintaining energy production. With dramatic demonstrations, the Consumer Product Safety Commission warns of the pitfalls that can ruin a happy holiday and the stunning statistics behind injuries related to holiday decorating, cooking and toys. Dramatic demonstrations. To underscore how the season of lights and wonder can bring household hazards, the Consumer Product Safety Commission releasing a new report about fires and injuries related to holiday decorating, cooking, and more. How the unthinkable can happen in an instant. Fires involving Christmas trees and candles are far too frequent in this holiday season. The CPSC says an average of 1,600 cooking fires take place on Thanksgiving Day, more than three times the daily average. CPSC says to stay close while food is on the stove or in the oven and place a turkey fryer far from the house, never on the porch or in the garage. The CPSC also reports nearly 15,000 people were treated in hospital emergency rooms last holiday season between November and January due to decorating related injuries. More than 40% of those injuries involved falls. And a dry tree is a more flammable tree. A live Christmas tree needs plenty of water and check for broken light bulbs and frayed wires regularly. When it comes to holiday toys. When you're buying toys, making sure they're age appropriate because we do see a lot of injuries associated with small parts for children. CPSC did say their researchers observed a downward trend from 2015 to 2022 in toy-related injuries for children 14 years and younger. The world's busiest airport is about to get even busier. Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International is expecting more than 3.6 million passengers. That's during the Thanksgiving travel season, November 17th through the 28th. The airport says they are expecting upwards of 400,000 more passengers than last season. Passengers flying out of Atlanta may face an additional challenge. One of the large parking lots that serves the airport is closed for construction. Air travel will be exceptionally busy nationwide this Thanksgiving. AAA says airlines are expecting record numbers over a nearly two-week period. An update on YouTube's AI policy. The Google-owned platform will soon be labeling videos that contain AI-generated content, citing the risk of misleading viewers. 
The new rule will require creators to add labels when they upload manipulated or synthetic content that is realistic, including using AI tools. The policy is meant to help prevent users from being confused by synthetic content amid an increase in AI tools that make it quick and easy to create text, images, video, and audio that can often be hard to distinguish from the real thing. Digital information integrity experts have expressed concern that the growth of generative AI tools could lead to a boom in convincing but misleading content being shared on social media and across the internet. The technology could also pose a threat ahead of elections in the United States and elsewhere. Staying with artificial intelligence, Google says its GraphCast AI can offer a faster and more accurate way to predict the weather. In a study published in the journal Science, Google's AI model was found to give more accurate day-to-day -day forecasts and better predictions of severe weather like hurricanes. The model even outdid the industry gold standard European model weather simulation system. Google's AI model is based on four decades worth of historical data. It can produce 10-day forecasts in less than a minute, where traditional models take an hour or more. Still to come, sending immigrants from the UK to Africa. The UK Supreme Court today saying the plan is unlawful. However, Britain's Prime Minister says he has one more ace up his sleeve. An American journalist detained in Russia, her husband now urging the US government to free her and commenting on the foreign agent allegations. And Chinese companies are still able to buy advanced U.S. chip-making equipment despite export curbs. A new report explains how. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The UAW's deal to end the strike at GM and Ford could be in trouble. A growing number of rank-and-file auto workers are voting against the deal. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, why is the deal in trouble? Well, remember when we reported that the UAW and the automakers uh, reached an agreement? That was a tentative deal. So, of course, it has to be voted on, and that's what's happening now. Uh, as we speak, votes are coming in. Uh, let me just give uh, some broad st uh, strokes as to the key points here. Uh, a couple of uh, plants actually voted no uh, for this deal. Uh, there's a plant for GM at Spring Hill, Tennessee, and another one at Flint, uh, Michigan. Um, so for the Spring Hill one, nearly 70% uh, voted against the deal, and then the Michigan one, 52% uh, voted against uh, the deal. Um, now, this, this deal uh, still needs to be approved, and the voting is uh, coming in. Uh, right now, the total tally is uh, for GM at around 52% of uh, people in favor of, of the deal. And uh, we're seeing similar situations at Ford as well. Uh, they're in the process of uh, ratifying this agreement and voting actually ends for GM on Thursday. So we'll find out then if uh, the majority of people are in favor of this agreement. So Don, how likely is it that the UAW strikes will resume at the two automakers? Well, the deal still has support from the majority, so that's good. Uh, but neither vote at this point is large enough to uh, assure uh, passage, uh, right? Uh, but it seems like Sean Fain, uh, president of the UAW, is optimistic about the deal uh, passing through, actually, because 
he said uh, the voting is trending positive. That, that's what he told reporters. Uh, but a no vote would essentially mean that the strikes would resume. And uh, that wouldn't be good because the two sides would then have to uh, go back to the negotiating table. And let me just point out that Sean Fain has previously said that uh, the deal was actually a record agreement uh, for the two sides. So if the two sides go to the negotiating table again, I don't know how much employees can get further from these record deals. But uh, Sean Fain is optimistic that it's going to go through. And Don, what else is happening in the business world? Yeah, sure. Uh, automaker Stellantis is asking some of its uh, U.S. employees to quit voluntarily. The company will offer them a separation package in exchange for that. Uh, this buyout package includes different benefits based on the employee's years of service. For example, uh, it ranges from three months of pay for those with less than 10 years of service to a full year salary for those with 20 or more years at the company. And this is a cost-cutting measure. And the buyouts are available to all salaried employees with five or more years of uh, seniority, uh, totaling around half of its non-union staff. Uh, but in other news, it seems like U.S. retail sales uh, fell for the first time in seven months in October. Uh, Americans spent less on shopping amid high interest rates. Uh, new data shows retail sales uh, dropped compared to the prior month. And what contributed to the decline was reduced sales of big ticket items like cars, for example, and furniture. Uh, but durable goods, uh, it seems like, uh, are also being purchased using credit. So uh, it shows uh, maybe perhaps Americans are uh, cutting back on, on their uh, spending. But uh, it seems like spending is still at a decent pace at restaurants and supermarkets. So a, a little bit of a balancing act there. Right. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, thank you. Shifting gears, we now have some short headlines from the UK, Denmark and other European countries. The UK can't send immigrants to the African country of Rwanda. The British Supreme Court made the decision today. However, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is already announcing plans to go around the court's rulings. If it becomes clear that our domestic legal frameworks or international conventions are still frustrating plans at that point, I am prepared to change our laws and revisit those international relationships. The British people expect us to do whatever it takes to stop the boats, and that is precisely what this government will deliver. Burning the Quran in Nordic countries. Denmark is now debating a bill that would ban Quran burnings. This comes after Denmark and Sweden saw a few protesters over the summer burn or damage copies of the Quran. The government previously said a ban would not infringe on free speech rights and would apply to objects of major religious significance. There will be three hearings on the bill before the parliament will vote on it. And an update on Russian-American journalist being held in a Russian prison. Russia is holding Alsu Kermashev on suspicion of violating Moscow's law on foreign agents. She was charged last month with failing to register as a foreign agent. She's awaiting trial and faces a sentence of up to five years. Her husband now urges the U.S. government to designate her as wrongfully detained. I keep saying that, and, and I, I'm, I'm adamant about it. Also, is held there for political reasons. As a matter of fact, political activity is in the very definition 
of the Russian notion of uh, a foreign agent, which of course we deny, and she's not an agent of any uh, government. Heading to the Asia-Pacific, we have more updates from China, Japan, and Australia. Are U.S. export curbs targeting Chinese chipmakers working a new government report? finds that Chinese companies are still buying U.S. chip-making equipment to make advanced chips. The U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission released its annual report. It takes aim at the Biden administration's export curbs announced in 2022. The rules seek to bar Chinese chip-makers from getting U.S. chip-making tools if they would be used to manufacture advanced chips. However, the report finds that importers can often buy the equipment if they claim it's being used on an older product line. And with a lack of inspections, it's hard to verify the equipment is not being used to produce more advanced chips. The finding comes as the U.S. scrambles to figure out how Chinese telecom giant Huawei was able to produce an advanced semi-7 nanometer chip to power its smartphones. And an update about the presidential election in Taiwan early next year. The two main opposition parties have announced a joint presidential ticket in, for the election in January. The agreement would bring together the presidential candidate for the Nationalist Party and the independent Taiwan People's Party candidate. Until now, both of them have trailed in polls behind frontrunner William Lai. Lai represents the Democratic Progressive Party and currently serves as Taiwan's vice president. Unlike Lai, the opposition parties have vowed to renew talks with the Chinese Communist regime. Australia's nuclear submarine program is a likely target of state-sponsored cyber espionage. This is what the country's digital spy agency said today. The Australian Authority released its latest annual online threat assessment. The report highlights China's role in backing a group of hackers known as the Vault Typhoon. The group targeted U.S. critical infrastructure, including military facilities on Guam. It warns that the same techniques could be used against Australian infrastructure to gather information or disrupt activities. A big potential target is Australia's cooperation with the U.S. and U.K. to develop nuclear submarines for the Australian Navy. Uh, well, uh, China, we, we have done an attribution of China, which we, we did uh, in May of this year. Um, there are um, a, a number of state actors out there which have also at times um, engaged in activity. Uh, so what we're making sure that we do is uh, that we are as uh, robust as we can be in terms of the defence of our own critical infrastructure. Coming up, a stranded sheep is rescued from a cliff in the Scottish Highlands. The woolly animal turns into an international celebrity after her recovery. More shortly here on NTD News Today. If you're not a fan of self-checkout at the grocery store, you're not alone. And it's not just customers who don't like it. Some major companies are rethinking their use of the technology. Booths. It's a British supermarket chain. It's removing self-checkout stations in all but two of its 28 stores. In the U.S., Walmart, Costco and Wegmans and other chains have also revised their self-checkout strategies. Booth's managing director says customers have long complained that the machines are slow, unreliable and impersonal. And customers sometimes have difficulty identifying fruits and vegetables. And there are delays for products like, like alcohol that require age verification. 
Other retailers have found self-checkouts lead to higher merchandise losses from customer errors and shoplifting than having human cashiers. If you're watching your spending, it might be time to skip the drive-thru and head to the supermarket. In the 12 months through October, higher restaurant prices drove food prices above overall inflation. But grocery prices were relatively low. The U.S. government says for the year, grocery prices rose 2.1%, but menu prices were up nearly 5.5%. That was driven largely by a more than 6% rise at limited service restaurants, which include fast food and fast casual spots. At full-service restaurants, prices were up 4.3% for the year. Some grocery items did notch higher increases, particularly in the meat aisle. Nuts are an excellent source of nutrients for your health. The question is, which ones are the best to eat? NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body dives into five heart-healthy nuts. Consuming nuts regularly can help to prevent cardiovascular diseases. They also provide essential nutrients and phytochemicals. Let's look at their nutrient profile, then the best ones to choose. Nuts contain monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. This helps to control cholesterol and blood pressure. The fiber found in nuts promotes a healthy gut microbiome. It aids in regulating blood lipids, blood sugar, blood pressure, and metabolism. Nuts are rich in magnesium. This helps to regulate the tension of vascular smooth muscles, stabilizing blood pressure. The slightly astringent taste when eating nut skins comes from the polyphenols within. These polyphenols have antioxidant properties. They enhance blood vessel elasticity and reduce inflammation. Nuts are rich in potassium. Research suggests that potassium is essential for blood pressure control. These are just a few of the benefits nutritionally, but what are the best ones to eat? Let's look at the top five that are generally rated the highest. Number one, Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts are rich in the trace element selenium. Selenium benefits liver detoxification. It also maintains thyroid function. Incorporating a small amount of Brazil nuts can provide selenium for those who consume limited seafood. Number two, macadamia nuts. Macadamia nuts are rich in monounsaturated fatty acids. These help to regulate cholesterol and blood lipids. Number three, almonds. Almonds are an economical and nutritious option containing high protein, fiber, potassium, and calcium levels. Number four, pistachios. With higher levels of vitamin E, pistachios are a source of fat-soluble antioxidants. If you don't get vitamin E from nuts, your intake is relatively low. And number five, walnuts. Walnuts are high in omega-3 content and have anti-inflammatory properties. This benefits vascular and brain health, particularly in preventing stroke and vascular dementia. Beyond being enjoyed as snacks, nuts can take various forms such as nut butters, smoothies or nut flour and can be added to salads or porridge to provide nutritional value. The Scottish Highlands are a no notoriously wild and rugged place and one sheep trapped there for two years has finally been rescued. Now five brave farmers have turned her into an international celebrity. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the beloved animal. Fiona the sheep is making a remarkable recovery after two years of isolation. This fresh bed of straw is a welcome sanctuary after being trapped on a steep cliff. Despite the danger, a group of farmers decided it was time for the sheep to return to the flock. 
well being terrified of heights and of dying I was very very relieved I must admit uh, but even more relieved that we got her up there without her you know having any issues. A group of kayakers spotted Fiona and couldn't just leave her behind. Jillian Turner describes how Fiona would run towards them. We were shocked and then of course she ran along the shore because it's a very rocky shore but if, you know there are some flat areas she can jump across and she followed us right to the edge. After a haircut, Fiona has just enough wool to keep her warm this winter. The huge fleece is a monumental reminder of her adventure. Fiona's survival story has made her a celebrity around the world. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Two very young orphaned mountain lion siblings were rescued in California. They are now at the Oakland Zoo. A female mountain lion believed to be their mother was hit by a car and killed on Saturday near the Bay Area community of Hillsborough. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife quickly brought the two lion cubs to the zoo yesterday. The zoo found that both cubs were healthy female kittens. Orphaned cubs such as these remain on average for eight days in the zoo's ICU. Once cleared, they'll make a temporary home at the zoo's vet hospital for some weeks or months. They will be staying there until authorities can find them a proper home. So the two little girls on intake um, look pretty good. They're a little bit quiet. They're definitely dehydrated. They're definitely thin. They've probably been starving since they left their mom. Um, but overall, no big injuries on physical exam. All right, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.